Our next speaker is well known to many of you. He's uh, delivered terrific lectures many times at our meetings. Dr. Zaros is, uh, works at The Ohio State University, runs a uh, dermatitis referral clinic where he gets all the worst rashes from many of the dermatologists all over the area. Uh, as you'll find out, his lectures are always full of practical tips and are often very funny as well. So please welcome Dr. Zyrus. All right, so good morning, everybody. The, so when you get asked to lecture in Vegas at 8.45 in the morning, it means one of two things. Either nobody cares what you've got to say, or they think that your lecture will get people to actually show up. Uh, at a reasonable time. I am going to choose to believe option number two. All right, so let's see. Let's, we're going to talk about uh, practical contact dermatitis. So where this talk comes from, I am a contact dermatitis person. I do uh, clinic about five days a week. They are all patients who are sent from other dermatologists or allergists, and it's a very unnatural situation. So I have 45 minutes. Uh, for a visit with the patient, and then I'm going to patch test him and we'll see him back five days later for another 45-minute visit. And so I can ask them every question known to man, right? So talk to them about everything, you know, really have time to think things through. And it occurred to me one day that whenever I'm in an actual clinic seeing patients in normal visits and somebody walks in with dermatitis or potential contact dermatitis, I am completely overwhelmed and have no idea what to do. I'm like, for God's sakes, I need 45 minutes. And then it occurred to me, you know what? Whenever I give a lecture and I'm talking about contact dermatitis, none of those people are having 45-minute visits with people. And so it, it changed the way that I think about contact dermatitis. Um, and, and I'm going to try and give you a very practical approach to how to, uh, for how to deal with these patients whenever they walk into your office. All right, so this is my email. Um, for anybody who has ever emailed me, you will know I love getting emails about, oh my God, I had this weird patient, I didn't know what to do, I had this, I had that. Um, I love sort of email questions uh, about stuff because it's the fun part of dermatology, getting to uh, say, oh, this is what they have and what to do, but without the bad part of dermatology, which is when they come back in six weeks and they're no better. Right? So the email me uh, if you have any questions about today, all right? So, who should be patch tested, right? So every patient with an itchy rash, every patient with spongiosis and eosinophils, every patient with suspected contact dermatitis, all of the above or none of the above. So it's absolutely none of the above, okay? Whenever you look at these people, who ought to be patch tested? So ideally, everybody with suspected contact dermatitis ought to be patch tested. That's ideally, right? That is not the real world. That's not what you're going to do in real life. So you start with empiric treatment. So you look at the patient and you say, I bet they're probably allergic to XYZ. I'm going to have them change that product to something that's very low allergenicity. And then I'm going to put them on a topical steroid or do whatever. And then if they don't get better, or if they get better, but what I told them to do is not a sustainable um, solution, then I'm going to think about patch testing them. Right? So whenever somebody walks in with dermatitis, the first thing you think should not be, oh my god, I need to patch test this person. The first thing you should think should be, what do I think they're allergic to? What am I going to do right now at this, at this moment? Okay? And then the next time they come back is whenever you would think about whether or not you want to patch test them. So in a patient with suspected contact dermatitis to a personal care product, if you do the true test, 
the chances they'll get better, 1%. Really, really low number, right? So why, where do I get that? Do I, am I making that up? I'm not making it up. It's, it's actually a result of some calculations, right? So one-third of people with contact dermatitis have, uh, with suspected contact dermatitis, actually have contact dermatitis. So we're at 30%. Whenever you walk in the room and you think, oh, I bet this person has contact derm, you're at 30%, all right? Once you look at the true test and the data on it, it, it accurately diagnoses about a third of those people, right? So you're going to accurately diagnose maybe 10% of them uh, if you're lucky with the true test. So now you're down to 10%. When you look at how many people actually remember what they're allergic to, it is about 50%. So now you're down to 5% of people at best. And then once you look at if they remember it, do they actually do it? You get down to around 1%. And this is why lots of people have a perception that patch testing is not helpful. And it's because very few people are going to get better when you're, when you're doing the true test and doing standard patch testing and contact dermatitis. Right? So comparing those two systems, why do people use the true test? Because it's convenient and fast. Right? You, can, you buy it, it comes in a box, it's prepackaged, you slap it on their back, um, and it gives you a result, and, and you're kind of working them up. The problem with it, it's missing a lot of important allergens. So propylene glycol, betaine's fragrance mix, several things that are some of the really key allergens. The chamber systems, the problem with them is they're labor intensive, so you're gonna have an office member who's gonna sit there and put a drop of allergen in each of 100 little uh, discs, right, in fin chambers. But the, the benefit is you can patch those people to everything that they might be allergic to. Um, the other problem with it is, is it's very expensive, right? So patch testing is done by the number, it's billed by the number of, of patches. And so if you patch somebody to 100 things, it costs three times as much as the true test. So it's, it's expensive as well to do the, the chamber system. All right, so how do I think about dermatitis in a busy clinic? So the, right, I talked about the way that it occurred to me, I have to think about this differently that I think about it when I'm in my contact dermatitis clinic. So first question, when I walk in the room and somebody's got an itchy rash, how likely is it that it's contact dermatitis, right? Sometimes it's really easy. It's, you know, you walk in, it's lichen planus, or uh, it's poison ivy, in which case I know it's contact dermatitis, but I know what it's to, I don't have to worry about it. Or it's, you know, pityriasis rosea or whatever, something where I look at it and I know what it is and I know it's not contact dermatitis. On the other hand, there are a lot of people who are not really sure what they've got. If I'm not sure, what are the chances I think it might be contact dermatitis? And then if it's contact dermatitis, what uh, are the likely products? And so one of the things you'll notice today, I'm not going to talk about any allergens. I'm not going to give you any chemical names. Uh, I'm not going to talk about methylchloroacetazolinone or cocomidopropobetane or idopropanil butylcarbonate because it doesn't matter, right? You don't need to know the names of the allergens any more than you need to know what the uh, genetic changes are in melanoma, right? You need to be able to look, look at a mole and say, oh, that might be a melanoma. And you need to then know, oh, I need to biopsy that. And then you need to know what to do when you get the biopsy result back. You don't need to know that BRAF is you know, one of the common mutations and what that means and whatever. Same thing with contact dermatitis. Talking about the allergens doesn't make any clinical sense. So we're gonna talk instead about what are the likely products that you need to think about and then once you think about, okay, this might be shampoo, it might be conditioner, it might be soap, it might be gloves, it might be whatever, 
what can you empirically be like, hi, Mrs. Smith, I think you might be allergic to your laundry detergent and your fabric softener. Here's what I want you to use. Here's some topical steroid. I'm going to see you back in six weeks, right? The, the sort of quick aspect of the visit. All right, so now we're going to go through some just clinical presentations of contact dermatitis. And bef before we do that, I'm going to step back one more time and talk a little bit more about the true test. So let's, I'm going to assume that most of you are working in offices where you do the true test. You don't have uh, comprehensive patch testing uh, available in your office, but there's somebody within an hour or two radius who does comprehensive patch testing that you could send patients to. So, and you want to think of your contact dermatitis person as sort of the same idea as Mohs surgery, where whenever I have a, a particular type of case, I'm going to send you to this person who this is, they do a lot of this. And so they're very good at it because they do so much. When you think about it that way, who should you true test and who should you send to that person, right? So we've got a good sense of for Mohs, if the basal cell is on their nose, you're going to send them to the Mohs surgeon. If it's on their cheek, you're going to do it uh, in-house, right? But so in contact dermatitis, who should you send for comprehensive patch testing? The true test is used most effectively if you think you know what they're allergic to and you know that the true test tests for that. So if they walk in and you think they're allergic to neomycin or bacitracin, to rubber or to metals, it makes tons of sense. You use the true test to confirm that diagnosis, right? So it's basically, I think your diagnosis is rubber allergy, metal allergy, you know, neosporin allergy, and then I'm going to confirm that with the true test. Everything else, if you think they are allergic to a personal care product, so like I said, shampoo, moisturizer, makeup, soap, whatever, you think they're allergic to clothing, you think they're allergic to, to anything that's out of that area, out of metal, rubber, neosporin, those are people that you ought to send for comprehensive patch testing, okay? Because the true test is very, very, very bad at picking those people up. Probably 10% accurate diagnosis as opposed to 30% overall once you pull out the nickel and the rubber uh, and those things. And so eyelids, whenever somebody walks in with an eyelid dermatitis, these are actually some of my favorite patients because eyelid dermatitis, you can look at it and have a very good idea of what's going on with this patient immediately, right? So what's your differential diagnosis besides allergic contact dermatitis? Irritant dermatitis, seboseriasis, and atopic eyelid dermatitis. And clinically, you can almost always make an, an accurate distinction. Is it allergic contact, irritant contact, seboseriasis, or atopic? Okay, so looking at these, the, the most common cause of allergic contact dermatitis of the eyelids, shampoo. And one of the useful things about that, when somebody comes in with eyelid dermatitis and you start asking about makeup and eye creams and whatever, they've already, you know, oh, I've changed my makeup three times, I've stopped using all my eye creams, you know, you're not going to get anywhere with them, but they will not have thought about their shampoo. And shampoo is by far the most common, even if they have thought of their shampoo, the common allergens in shampoo are, in, are the same in about 90% of shampoos. So even if they've changed shampoos five times, they've probably not gone to a non-allergenic shampoo. All right, so nail polish is possible, but actually very, very rare, right? It was when I was a resident, I was taught, oh my God, eyelid dermatitis, think about their nails. I've seen one case in the last five years of somebody who had an eyelid dermatitis due to their nail polish or artificial nails. Okay, you can, get, so you can get eyelid dermatitis as part of the overall picture, but it's not an isolated eyelid dermatitis. Uh, eye makeup, extremely rare for me. Now, that might be because the first thing the patient does is change their makeup, and if they get better, they don't come to see me, 
right? So it might be some, some sort of uh, bias. And then conditioner and face soap are also fairly common in addition to shampoo. So when you see eyelid dermatitis beyond the eyelids, those are the people that you really, really want to think about allergic contact dermatitis. So this is you know, going out beyond the orbital rim. It's around the whole uh, eyelid. It's very itchy. Right? This guy ended up being allergic to the uh, hair dye that he was using at home. Okay? So you know, normal at-home dye, he was putting it in his hair, then rinsing it out. When you rinse it out, it rinses down over your face, and you can get allergic contact dermatitis. This woman uh, is a great demonstration of, of one of the other sort of fallacies that, that many of us are taught. Right? Certainly, again, it was something I was taught in residency, that you get a contact dermatitis on your eyelids because it's thin skin, right? and it's very sensitive. There's probably some element of that that's correct, but in general, that's a total load of baloney. Right? So the reason you get contact dermatitis on your eyelids is because whenever you're rinsing shampoo or soap off your face, your eyes are closed. Right? When your eyes are closed, your whole eyelid is, is exposed and available. You then spend the rest of the day with your eyelids open, occluding that area. So the eyelid is an occluded area that if you get any irritant or allergen that gets retained on there whenever it's rinsing and the whole eyelid's available, you then get irritant or allergic contact dermatitis very easily. And the reason I show this picture in particular, right, you see she was getting the same thing on her neck, and it's the same idea. When she was rinsing after shampooing and washing her face, her neck's extended, and so those lines are open, but then the rest of the day she's, rest of the day she's walking around and those are relatively occluded. And so it, it is the same idea on the eyelids and the neck in this patient. She was allergic to her face soap. All right, so this girl, uh, again, eyelid dermatitis beyond the eyelids, right? So it's going sort of over the whole orbital area. And I'll, I'll show you some pictures of what I mean by eyelid dermatitis limited to the eyelids. And she also has it on her jawline. She went, she is a woman who had atopic dermatitis, went to see her dermatologist. Dermatologist put her on Dove soap, and she was allergic to her Dove soap. Uh, and so she got a lot worse. And I tell patients generally to use Dove soap, so I'm not saying Dove is a bad product in general, but it's an example of people can be allergic to even the products that we recommend commonly. Okay, so in this woman, she was allergic to the Dove soap, and that made her get worse. So that eyelid dermatitis beyond the eyelids, I love this picture because it, it demonstrates two things, right? One is that when you have eyelid dermatitis that's worse on one eye than the other, you need to think about ectopic eyelid dermatitis. Eyelid dermatitis that you washed your hands, you put something on your hands, moisturize or whatever, and then you transferred it to your eye by touching your eye. Okay, this woman uh, is a great example of how you will never figure out what the ectopic thing is in most cases until you patch test them and really look. So she ended up being allergic to parabens. Parabens were not in her soap. They weren't in anything. Couldn't find them anywhere in any of her products. Turned out they were in the preparation H that she was using for her hemorrhoids when she would go to bed at night. When she was asleep, there were two areas that were itchy, her hemorrhoids and her eyelid. And so she would scratch one and then scratch the other without being aware of it, thus transferring the preparation H from one to the other. Not a pleasant thought uh, as you are drifting off to sleep tonight. All right? So then, again, asymmetrical eyelid dermatitis. Whenever you see it worse on one eyelid than the other, think of irritant or allergic that's being transferred from the hand to the eyelids. 
Okay, two more examples of it. Um, one of these women, I think, was allergic to her hand moisturizer. One was allergic to a preservative uh, in the paint that she used. She was a painter. All right, so then irritant dermatitis. So this is what I mean whenever I talk about eyelid dermatitis limited to the eyelids. So when you look at this picture compared to the last ones, when you see eyelid dermatitis that is very limited, especially to right around this crease on the upper eyelid, right? You really want to think primarily about irritant eyelid dermatitis, right? Allergic eyelid dermatitis is much more likely to spread, you know, out through here. Irritant is very likely to stay right there, right around that fold, okay? So another case of irritant eyelid dermatitis, and again, very limited, very much uh, around the folds, the creases. And because those are areas where things get trapped and then occluded, um, and irritant dermatitis then gets uh, going in that area. If it's allergic contact dermatitis, it also starts there, but then it tends to spread. Right? So irritant eyelid dermatitis, so so far I've, got, I've given you two types. So allergic contact dermatitis tends to be very itchy and relatively widespread around the eye. Irritant eyelid dermatitis, less itchy. If you ask the patient, is it more itchy or is it more irritated? They will tell you usually it's more irritated than it is itchy uh, whenever it's irritant eyelid dermatitis. The, and then um, the um, degree of sort of edema also helps. So if it's more swollen, then you're more suspicious of allergic contact dermatitis. So then next, we talk about seborrheic dermatitis of the eyelids. People very rarely make this diagnosis. Um, and it, it is a diagnosis that it's less common than the other two, but it's not rare. You can see this in people who don't have uh, seborrheic dermatitis of the scalp or other areas. It can be just their eyelids. The thing that you want to look for for this is a sharp cutoff, a sharp border where you can say, oh, that's right where it stops and right where it starts. And this looks morphologically very similar uh, to uh, guttate psoriasis, uh, for example. So very well-defined red, dry, scaly patches tends not to be very itchy in most cases. All right, another example of eyelid uh, seborrheic dermatitis. So again, whenever you look at this very sharply demarcated, right, you can draw a very good line about where this stops and starts was somewhat itchy, but not terribly itchy. You know, we had a good clue in this woman when we looked at her because she had sort of seborrheic dermatitis here and a little bit around her nose, which are very common areas. But again, very sharply cut, right? Very good border where it is. So then lichen simplex, or atopic dermatitis of the eyelids. These are people who have a very itchy rash over the medial canthus. Okay, so the, the middle portion of the eyelid. And so why, you know, why is that what we see with atopic eyelid dermatitis? Well, if you think about little kids, right, we're all very comfortable with the idea that little kids get atopic eyelid dermatitis. They get sort of a little bit of lichenification of their whole eye. They get allergic shiners, right? And that's because if you're a little kid and you have allerg environmental allergies and your eyes are itchy, what do you do, right? You take your fist and you go like this, right? Watch a little kid sometime. They do that. If you're an adult and your eye is itchy, what do you do? You don't take your whole fist and go like this. You take one finger and you go, ooh, I'm, I'm very suave and uh, very, uh, I'm not gonna be like a little kid, right? Nobody's noticing what I'm doing, right? And you rub right there. And if you do that enough, you get lichen simplex of the medial canthus, all right? And another example of that, you know, a little bit worse in this case, but atopic dermatitis, lichen simplex of the eyelids, 
right? So whenever we look at this person, most likely diagnosis, SIBO psoriasis. Why? Because we've got the really sharp cutoff, right? So we've got a very nice, it's very sharply demarcated right through here, right? Very sharply demarcated, right? Not following the crease very, very well, not spread way beyond the eyelids. It, it is very sharply demarcated. So eyelids, allergic contact dermatitis, very itchy, extends well beyond the, the fold, irritant contact, irritant, relatively localized, SIBO psoriasis, sharply defined, atopic dermatitis, medial canthus. Okay, so whenever you walk into a room with a patient with eyelid dermatitis, you can, in 30 seconds, have a very good idea of why they have eyelid dermatitis. So that empiric management, right? So you walk in the room, what do you do? My favorite product relative, relevant to eyelid dermatitis is California Baby Super Sensitive Shampoo and Body Wash. It's very non-irritating, incredibly low allergenicity. Most important, though, it's easy to get. You go to Target, and it's on the shelf. So they don't have to order it. It's not like, so free and clear is a very good product as well, but it's hard to get, right? They gotta go to their drugstore and ask for it. Drugstore usually doesn't have it, they have to order it. California Baby Super Sensitive Shampoo and Body Wash. Okay, it's, a sing it's one product on the bottle that says shampoo and body wash. So they can use it to wash their face, their hair, their body, everything. California Baby Super Sensitive Conditioner. Wash your face with a gentle cleanser after rinsing out your shampoo and conditioner. Okay, so trying to remove any of those retained allergens or irritants can be Cetaphil Gentle Skin Cleanser, can be a CeraVe Hydrating Cleanser, what, whatever you want to use, but a very non-irritating uh, cleanser, and you wash your face with it, and then you pay a lot of attention to rinsing very well. Low allergenicity moisturizer and cleanser for the face and hands, no nail cosmetics, just in case. All right, so Revlon nail enamels don't have any of the common nail allergens in them. And then low potency ointment, something like desonide ointment, um, desoxymedazone ointment, 0.05%, uh, which is a class four, as opposed to the 0.25 desoxymedazone, which is a class two. All right, so nail cosmetics, I just always like talking about this. What is the absolute most allergenic worst nail polish that a woman can walk out of this room and buy? Anybody, give me, somebody, somebody give me something. OPI. Right, guys are like, OPI, what the hell is that? <laughs> right? OPI, right, is the best nail polish on the market, right? Holds up very well, very good colors, doesn't chip, the whole kit and caboodle, has by far the most allergen of any nail polish on the market. Um, and probably it's because those high levels of toluene saponamide formaldehyde resin, which you don't need to remember, you just need to remember OPI has a lot of it, has a lot of something bad, um, is why it's such a good nail polish, but also why it's so allergenic. Right, so then peripheral face. So preauricular here, right, submental, kind of down here along the edge of the jawline, that's a rinse-off pattern. And you think about that one as being, we as, as humans, our heads are not a perfect sphere, right? If they were a perfect sphere, we wouldn't see this. Our heads are, are kind of pointed with a, a little bit of a, um, you know, they come out to a point along our nose in the, in the middle of our face. And so whenever stuff rinses, whenever you rinse your shampoo out, it rinses down over the sides. Doesn't rinse here, it rinses here. And so that's why you get allergic contact dermatitis in those areas if you're allergic to that stuff. So the likely culprits, shampoo, conditioner, uh, are the two big ones, face soap maybe, right? So this girl, just a typical example of this, sides of the neck. Uh, and again, think about it as just that's where it rinses down. 
right? These people, sort of more pre-auricular, a little bit of post-auricular. These people, again, very similar, two different patients, right? People always like, aren't those the same two people? No, two different people, just this is a very typical presentation of this dermatitis kind of around the ear uh, because that's where this stuff rinses. Right, so empiric management for rinse-off allergic contact dermatitis. California baby again. Uh, so right, you walk in the room to this person, you see them with dermatitis on the, on the sides of their face, maybe their neck, their jawline, any of those areas. You walk in, you say, oh, you know what? I bet that you are very sensitive. So I don't use the, in, in a short clinic visit, I don't use the word allergic because allergic invites the patient being like, well, but I've been using it for years and I don't get itchy whenever I use it. And you're now in the room for like 20 minutes trying to explain you know, allergic contact dermatitis and being like, well, it's like poison ivy. So whenever you get it on your skin, you don't itch till two days later. And the, it's just easier to be like, to say, oh, I bet you are having a reaction. You're, you're very sensitive and I bet your shampoo or conditioner is doing this. Now, and then they will say, but I've been using the same shampoo or conditioner for the last 10 years. The correct answer to that question is, you can become allergic to something after you've used it for years and years, right? So the, you can develop allergic contact dermatitis after you've had it for a long, after you've been using it for a long time. Again, that's a long discussion that's difficult to have in a, in a relatively quick clinic visit. So I will, I will often more say something like, well, maybe they changed the product, uh, or you know, maybe your, your skin has changed, or something like that, okay? Just to, to, to try and, and keep the visit moving. Um, but so we'll have them again, switch, California baby, uh, and then appropriate topical therapy. This might be tacrolimus ointment, uh, might be one of the low potency ointments. All right, so then lip dermatitis. Lip dermatitis is the bane of my existence. All right, I suspect it is the bane if, well, if, if anyone else has to see lip dermatitis on a regular basis, it is the bane of your existence also. There's, there's like the ladder of painful stuff when you are the clinician, right? In the, in the general ladder, hair loss is, is tops, <laughs> right? And that's because it's, it's kind of painful, but you see it all the time. And it's often a like, you've talked about their rosacea and you've looked at their moles and then you've got your hand on the door halfway out and they're like, oh, and by the way, right? And you're just like, oh God, right? So hair loss is probably the tops because you see it a lot. The lip dermatitis is, is much more painful, but less frequent, okay? So, the main differential diagnosis for lip dermatitis, irritant dermatitis slash cosmetic addiction, lip licking. Now, the, the main key to diagnosing lip licking is you never, ever, ever, ever ask somebody if they are licking their lips, right? You, as soon as you walk in the room, if, if you notice there's something going on with their lips or your MA has written lip problem on the thing, you walk in and you just talk to them and do a normal visit and you watch how many times they lick their lips, right? You don't ask them. You can, and so you, and, and have fun with this the next time you see somebody who thinks a lick lipper, a lick lipper, yes, a lip licker. <laughs> you will, you'll see them, they'll lick their lips, you know, every, every third word there. And then near the end, when you're ready to spring the lip licker on them, <laughs> say, do you ever, do you ever lick your lips? And they'll actually be, no, never lick them. <laughs> very aware of it. Have not, I'm, I know that that could be a problem, so I'm very careful not to do it. Right, patients have, it's one of those things, the best answer I ever got for this, because I asked a psychiatrist, why do these patients all lie to me? And they're not lying to you. If you hook them up to a polygraph, they believe that they are not licking. And the, this, what the psychiatrist told me, this is dissociation. And I was like, oh, that's a load of BS. There's dissociation. And then he said, well, 
think about it. Have you ever been reading a book, right? Especially a textbook, you're trying to learn something or study it, and you turn a page and you realize, son of a gun, I can't remember a single word that I've seen in the last three pages. That is dissociation. Now that's normal dissociation, that happens to most people, but it's a spectrum, right? So there's normal people, then there's the people who are nodularis and lip lickers and all that other stuff. Exact same thing where you don't remember having, you, you looked at every word on those two pages. Same thing happens, um, I don't think any of you live in Columbus, Ohio, so I can say this, when I'm driving all the time, right? You're driving along, you're like, son of a gun, I don't, hope I didn't kill anybody, because I don't remember <laughs> the last five minutes. It's the exact same thing, right? The, these people don't, they just don't remember, their, their brain was tuned out while they were doing this, okay? So they do believe that they're not licking. But the big thing with uh, contact dermatitis of the lips, allergic contact dermatitis violates the vermilion border. So the most common cause of allergic contact dermatitis of the lips, by far number one, is medicated lip balms. So Burt's Bees, Balmex, uh, stuff like that, okay? Number two is toothpaste. Number three is lip cosmetics, okay? But medicated lip balms are number one, toothpaste is number two. Those are by far the big two, right? So first, these are the people who do not have allergic contact dermatitis. And these patients, again, are, are difficult to, like I said, difficult to figure out. So these two people, you know, come into the office, oh, my lips are so swollen and they burn and they're puffy and I get little blisters and it's horrible and people are all looking at my lips and blah, blah, blah. And I'm looking at them, you know, thinking, oh, they, just, they don't have it right now. Right, There's, they swell up sometimes, but not now. And then I'm like, well, when is it, how often does this happen? What's happening right now? And I look at their lips and I'm like, oh, your lips look totally normal to me. In fact, many patients want me to send you to a, want me to send them to a cosmetic dermatologist to make your lips nice and puffy, right? But these people, you know, it's just like hair loss. Again, you can't tell that they've lost anything because you didn't see them before they lost it. You can't tell that these people's lips are puffy because you didn't see their lips before they got puffy. But what, you, what I want you to notice here, the vermilion borders are very well preserved, right? We can make a very nice vermilion border on both of these people. So they're complaining to me horribly about the burning, tingling, uh, puffiness of their lips, but their lips look normal and they've got normal vermilion borders. You do not need to patch test these people. I have never had a person with this complaint who actually had allergic contact dermatitis. Um, what I t try to do with these people, um, so I have, first I will tell you I have no idea what's wrong with them. And I have yet to ever find anybody who does. Never found that in a textbook, in a journal, anything. I have named this uh, the puffy lip syndrome. Because at least you're given, so first patients want an answer, right? So at least you're given, oh, you have puffy lip syndrome, right? Oh, well, it's obvious, right? Puffy lip syndrome. So the puffy lip syndrome, I do a couple of things. Um, I will have them, they, they usually are already using maybe nothing but Vaseline whenever they come in. I'll have them either get Lansino, which is a product for nipple dermatitis and breastfeeding mothers to use on their lips as their regular product. Um, is probably the most common thing. I'll also use Biafine sometimes. I, I, for some reason I have found that Biafine is often helpful as their regular thing. I will often have them use tacrolimus ointment twice a day. I will actually warn them, be careful not to put it on and then lick it and swallow it because you can, get a, you can actually get a little bit of tacrolimus um, in your blood if you're putting it on your lips and then swallowing it. All right, and then I'll have them use a high potency ointment. So like a clobetazole ointment two days a week. 
So Saturday, Sunday, or if they're you know, a weekend person, Thursday, Friday, whatever, but two days a week, I'll have them use a high-potency ointment. I've never had anybody get peridermatitis from using clobetazole twice a week. Um, so that's the, the way that I, oh, and then the last thing that I will do with them is tell them to start eating a lot of jalapeno peppers. And my reason for that, I believe that this is largely neurogenic. So they're getting neuropeptide release. Neuropeptides are, substance P is the main one, it causes burning and puffiness. If you cause substance P release repeatedly, your nerve endings run out of it and then it stops being a problem. And so if you have them eat something like jalapeno peppers or hot sauce that makes the, them get burning on a, two or three times a day, after a week or so, their lips will get better. Or they will be so pissed off at you <laughs> that they won't come back. And either way, you're a winner, right? You have solved your problem. In some of these cases, you've solved their problem, but in all of the cases, you've solved your problem, right? So this is what toothpaste allergy looks like. Toothpaste allergy, right? Lower lip and one side, right? So it's, think about you're brushing your teeth, there's a little bit of toothpaste that's on the toothbrush. So you're doing this, you get a little patch right here a lot of the time and your toothpaste runs down your lip, right? So you get alert, you get an allergic contact dermatitis down here. You don't get toothpaste, unless you're my kids, right? You don't get toothpaste up here. So you don't get much of a rash up here, but you get it down here. We switched him to a non-allergenic toothpaste. This is him in his one month follow-up. And, and again, you get the idea here, you can't see the vermilion border, right? The vermilion border is obliterated here. Here is it as one month follow-up. He's, he's dramatically better, um, and he, he continued to get better after this. Um, this is allergic contact dermatitis to lipstick, right? So lipstick tends to be very localized to the lips. The big thing, again, you have obliteration of the vermilion border, right? So you can't trace a nice vermilion border here. And then these are the, is what I tend to see whenever I see problems from medicated stuff. So this woman was allergic to her aquaphor, right? This girl was also allergic to her aquaphor. The, and so whenever you see stuff that's more of like a, a, a cream or an ointment that they're putting on, it tends to be spread a little bit more than, say, a Burt's Bees or a Balmex or something like that that just comes in a tube and you're putting it right on, okay? Um, so what do I do for, for uh, lip dermatitis? So first, this is just to point out to you that all the stuff that we think of as, quote, low allergenicity is just a load of baloney. Right, so Laura Mercier satin lip color, which sounds very allergenic, right? Oh my God, there's gotta be all kinds of horrible stuff in there, is much better than Burt's Bees, Vaseline Lip Therapy, Advanced Formula, 100% white petrolatum. And right, you're supposed to be sitting there thinking, 100% white petrolatum, is he saying that people are allergic to petrolatum? No, but it's a great example if you can't believe a label. Okay, so we'll talk in a second, but we'll, we'll see in a second. And then Aquaphor has lanolin and bisabolo, both of which a lot of people are allergic to. So first, use only petroleum jelly um, or the Lansino stuff, right? So Vaseline Lip Therapy Advanced Formula, active ingredients, white petrolatum 100%. Oh, well, that's perfect. But then a tiny little print down at the bottom, inactive ingredient flavor. And I've seen about a half dozen people now allergic to that flavor. And then for toothpaste, Tom's of Maine Orange Mango, Right, so you can get non-flavored toothpaste. Tom's of Maine makes a fennel flavored. You can order a non-flavored toothpaste. People would rather have their dermatitis than use a non-flavored toothpaste. All right, don't, so don't, you know, if you're like, oh, use um, baking soda to brush your teeth. Yes, that will work, but people 
hate it. They would much rather just have their rash. Toms of Maine, they still get you know, something that tastes good. If, if Toms of Maine, if they can't find it, you can have them use kid's toothpaste. So fruit or bubblegum flavored, because those flavors are very different from the flavors in normal toothpaste that they're likely to be allergic to. So kid's toothpaste uh, or uh, kid's toothpaste or Toms of Maine. The cosmetic addiction, uh, like we talked about the Lansino or high potency steroid two day, and a high potency steroid two days a week. I also do tacrolimus ointment in those people. So perianal dermatitis, right? Another one that's just one of your favorites, right? You love it whenever, and what's interesting about this, it tends to mainly be men, and they tend to mainly go to female physicians or PAs. Either that or it's the females who complain about the patients. I haven't figured out which one it is yet. Right, so perianal, you think about psoriasis, irritant dermatitis, and idiopathic anal pruritus. By far the big thing, somebody walks in with an itchy butt. Ask them about what they use whenever they go to the bathroom. Do they use regular toilet paper or do they use moist toilet paper? Oftentimes, um, physicians, so GI docs, primary care docs, derms, are telling people to use moist toilet paper because it gets your anus much cleaner after you have a bowel movement. Uh, stool is an irritant, and so it can cause a lot of itching and irritation. And so it's, it can be very beneficial to use the moist toilet paper, but it's a common cause of allergy. Right, so what do I do for these people? Uh, seventh generation free and clear wipes. Again, just a product you ought to remember, have at your disposal anytime you want people to use wipes for anything, whether it's um, parents taking care of their baby, people using it after they have a bowel movement, whatever. The seventh generation free and clear wipes uh, are at Target and there's no allergens in them. Topical therapy, right, you do a topical steroid, tacrolimus or pimecrolimus or topical lidocaine. And then diet, again, back to the hot peppers. Right? I'm a bit, it, it, believe it or not, it, again, it, it often helps. Right? The active ingredient, the capsaicin, is still present whenever the hot peppers come out the other end. First few days that they eat it, it will burn whenever they have a bowel movement. After a few days, it starts to help with the itching. Um, the interesting thing to take away from that, tacrolimus or permecrolimus, they cause the burning. So we now know the mechanism uh, of burning. And the best thing to tell people whenever you give them tacrolimus or permecrolimus topically, so whenever I give them the prescription, um, there's two things I always tell them proactively. Number one, you're going to get an uh, information sheet that says this might cause cancer. It does not cause cancer. We have an enormous amount of data now proving it doesn't cause cancer. We have data that topical steroids do cause cancer. We have data that moisturizers cause cancer. We have data that tacrolimus and pimecrolimus do not cause cancer. I, I don't bring up the steroids cause cancer whenever I'm prescribing steroids, of course. All right. And it's not like a big, it, it, it's ridiculous, like a big epidemiologic, whatever. Steroids and moisturizers don't actually cause cancer. But we have much more evidence suggesting that they do than pimecrolimus or tacrolimus. We have a lot of evidence that pimecrolimus or tacrolimus don't. So that's number one. I tell people, you're going to get a thing that says it might cause cancer. The pharmacist is going to tell you it might cause cancer. You're going to get online. And if you do a search, you're going to find three million law firms that want you to sue me immediately because it causes cancer, it doesn't cause cancer. Number two, if you are, and you gotta put it this way, right? So you're always looking to take advantage of the placebo effect. If you are really lucky, you're gonna put this on and it is gonna feel really, really hot. The same way your tongue feels when you eat uh, hot pepper, okay? If that happens, it means that it's gonna work really well. That's actually a sign that it's working already. So right now you've got placebo effect out the wazoo if they get the burning. If they're one of the 50% who don't get the burning, 
I still will be like, and if you don't get the burning, if you're, if you're unlucky and you don't get burning, then uh, there's still a good chance it's gonna work, but it's not quite as certain that it's gonna work. And so the burning is the exact same mechanism as capsaicin. So it causes substance P release just like hot peppers, and it feels the same way it does whenever you eat a hot pepper. All right, your tongue just gets hot. Um, but take advantage of the placebo effect. All right, so feet. Oh, another one. Main differential diagnosis if it's a dorsal foot. Irritant dermatitis from sweat and socks. If it's plantar, that's, if it's your, you know, the plantar foot, it's a whole lecture. But the likely culprits, right, the way that you gotta think about the likely culprits of dermatitis on your dorsal foot, when somebody gets a rash on the top of their foot, what does every single person in the entire world believe that they have? Fungus, right? And ha fungus, it's gotta be fungus, right? Because you get fungus on top of your foot all the time, right? So what do they do? They go to the store and they get uh, tenactin and they get Lamisil and they get Lotrimin and they put all that stuff on and it doesn't help. And they're like, oh, God, it's not, it's not fungus. Well, maybe it is fungus and it's just, is it working? So then they go get Neosporin and put that on. Right? Then that doesn't work. So then they're like, oh, maybe it's something else. They get hydrocortisone, put that on. Oh, still. Then they finally go to their primary care doc. What's the primary care doc give them? Lotrazone, right? Could be fungus, could be steroid, could be. Or if they happen to be a primary care doc who's been to Mexico, they'll give them a product that has not just an antifungal and a topical steroid, also antibacterials and lidocaine in it. Right? So that it could be, it doesn't matter what it is, it helps. Right? It's, it's like quadriderm, something like that. So the, they put now everything imaginable on their foot. And what is unique about shoes compared to everything else that you wear? You never wash a shoe. So once you put on Lotrimin or Lamisil or Neosporin or Hydrocortisone or anything else, it is permanently in your shoe. So if you don't use it again for the next year, if you are allergic to it, you're still getting exposed to it every time you put your shoe on. Right, so that's what's unique about it. So the main differential diagnosis of his dorsal is irritant dermatitis from sweat and socks or allergic contact dermatitis from the stuff they've been putting on it to try and treat it. It started as an irritant dermatitis from sweat and socks, but then they might have become allergic to it. So the likely culprits, most likely cause uh, allergic contact dermatitis of the dorsal feet, neomycin, right, for, for me. And this is a good example, right? So dermatitis kind of on the toes, Right, a little bit between the toes, and certainly I would scrape this and do a KOH and, and think about this being fungus. But are you putting anything on? Right, clotrimazole, neosporin, hydrocortisone, and then generic neosporin just in case the brand name neosporin didn't work. Right, and it, often if I ask these people, what are you, what have you putting on to make to try and treat this and get it better? I haven't put anything on. I haven't put anything on. And then I'm like, okay, well let me see the bag of stuff that you brought in, and they've got all this in it, and I'm like, well what? Oh, I, I you know, I forgot I put all that on. It's my, the fav, my best is whenever the residents are with me, and I'm like, did they put anything on their foot? No, they didn't. And then I get a little smile and go in, and do you put anything on your feet? Oh, no. Well, what, how about this, that? Let me see your bag. Oh, yeah, I did put a lot of stuff on. And then the resident feels like an idiot, right? But that, that's the way that the world works. I'm sure you all have that happen with your supervising docs as well, where you're like, did you, you, know, did you get sunburns whenever you were a kid? No, never had a sunburn, never. You sure, you never had a single sunburn? No, never been in the sun once in my whole life. I live in the dark. And then your supervising doc comes in. You ever, you ever had a sunburn? Oh my God, when I was five, I was in the hospital for two weeks. Right? Happens all the time. So feet, different diagnosis of his dorsal, irritant dermatitis from sweat and socks. Why irritant dermatitis from sweat and socks? Right? So, and again, this is allergic contact dermatitis. This is allergic contact dermatitis. This is allergic contact dermatitis of the sole of, of, the, of the plantar surface. 
The big thing with that, it's almost impossible to diagnose even with patch testing because there's so many random things people could be allergic to. Have them bring in their shoes, cut pieces of their shoe up. All right, just cut a little piece of their shoe, do a shave biopsy of the insole, and tape that to them and see if they react to it. That's how I diagnosed this woman. She was allergic to her Crocs, right? So another, this person was allergic to their sandals, the leather, right? This guy was allergic to the glue in his shoes. What do I do with these people? So first, address hyperhidrosis. This is a very, the dorsal foot dermatitis is a very reproducible demographic. There are two people who get a rash on their dorsal foot, two types of people. One, high school athletes. Number two, people who actually work for a living, right? So uh, work boots, uh, steel-toed boots, but people who sweat and wear something tight, right? That something that's holding the sweat in and something that's tight. High school athletes and people who work for a living the inside surface of a cotton sock, if you know, think about it next time you see a cotton sock, it's very rough. And you combine with that sweaty feet that make your stratum corneum very much more fragile than it normally is. And now you've got a great situation to cause irritant dermatitis from the friction, right? And people are always like, wow, from friction and rubbing, why would that be itchy and, and, and you know, red and, and have a dermatitis? Okay, I want you to go home and get a washcloth and I want you to rub your forearm for eight hours a day. And you tell me if your forearm gets red and irritated uh, and itchy, and I promise that it will. Right? That's exactly what's happening on the inside of your foot, uh, not the inside of your foot, on your foot, inside your shoe, um, except it's 16 hours a day rather than eight. All right? So stop wearing all shoes. So I'll have them go get, it, you, and this is usually men, so I'll have them get two pairs of, uh, of shoes. So one sort of normal pair, um, and one, whatever they need. If they're a high school athlete, it's um, uh, uh, athletic shoes. If they work for a living, it is uh, work boots. Put all your other shoes aside. Put them in a closet. That includes your slippers. You've got to tell them slippers because they won't think of that otherwise. Um, put all of them away. Don't, don't throw them away. Just put them in a closet. Wear only the new shoes for six weeks. And if you get better, then we know that it's very likely you're allergic to something that was put that you put on your foot that got into your shoes, okay? And then you can try reintroducing your old shoes one pair at a time. Only desoxymetazone ointment, nobody's allergic to that, and then smooth sock liners. So where do you get smooth sock liners? If you go online on Cabela's, you can get um, pro, uh, polypropylene sock liners that are smooth, uh, or you can just wear a men's dress sock, right? Like a, a thin nylon men's dress sock, you wear that under your cotton sock, either one of them, the sock liner or this under your cotton sock, cotton sock over that, and then your uh, work boot or your sneaker or whatever on top of that. That's also what you do for the, if you see kids who have shin dermatitis uh, from soccer shin guards, exactly, this is uh, exactly 100% the same thing. Okay, most of it is irritant dermatitis from sweat and rubbing. You do the exact same thing. Have them get a new pair of shin guards, don't put anything on, wear a smooth liner under their cotton socks. If it's a plantar foot, you replace all their insoles, cork or felt, um, if you're suspicious that it is uh, allergic contact dermatitis. You can get cork and felt at like a Michael's or some other craft store. Right, so hands, what are the likely culprits? Right, so big differential diagnosis, but when do you want to think about allergic contact dermatitis? You, you think about gloves, hand soaps, especially from public restrooms, moisturizers, over-the-counter topicals, and my favorite, and the one that will make the patient think you're a genius, is if you ask about hairstyling products, 
right? Because that's, that's not intuitive at all. All the other ones are intuitive. Why the hairstyling products? Most stuff that you would touch with your hands and use as a personal care product, you're putting other places, right? So you'll get a rash on your legs, your uh, trunk, your face, your butt, wherever you're putting the stuff on. Hairstyling products, right? What do you do? Gel, mousse, whatever, even hairspray, right? You put it in your hand, go like that. You put it on here, and then you rinse your hands off. It doesn't touch anything but your hands and your hair. Your hair can't get an allergic contact dermatitis. So you get a rash just on your hands if you're allergic to the preservative or the fragrance in your hairstyling product. The other ones, I don't think I need to go through the mechanism of how they get on your hands, right? And then dietary nickel is the last one. And we'll talk about that for, for a sec here. This guy, uh, this is an example of common things being common. Worked at a steel, steel mill, exposed to all these horrible chemicals. Um, really thought it was going to be his job. He was allergic to the rubber gloves that he wore when his wife made him do the dishes, right? Easy fix, gave him a script. He can't do dishes anymore. Uh, he was very happy, right? So this woman, and I, I love using this one, and for anybody who's seen me give a lecture about hand dermatitis before, it's my favorite. One, public, public restrooms, okay? The soap in a public restroom is the most allergenic material imaginable, right? Because when they put it in there, they don't know. It might be in that dispenser for eight years before anybody refills it. So they've got to have a ton of preservative, a ton of fragrance, and it's all antibacterial. This one was allergic to an antibacterial ingredient in soaps in public restrooms. Um, she, for a living, she went to office buildings at night and watered the plants. I'm 100% sure the antibacterial ingredient is the cause of her hand dermatitis. And I'm telling her this, and she's got the rash here as well. And she's like, and so I'm like, well, do you, whenever you're washing your hands, do you do this? Do you wash it? It's like, no. And she was a, a heavy smoker, of course. So this was her actual voice. No, I don't, I don't wash up there. Right? And she's, I can tell already, she doesn't really believe me. She's not buying in. We don't have a good rapport going on. Well, are you sure you don't? No, I don't have it. Did you have any eczema when you were a kid? No, I didn't have any eczema. Never had a rash in my life, just my hands. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm like, well, somehow this is getting from that soap to here. No, it's not. I, 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 we're not going to get better. I'm not going to get better. This is just, are you sure there's, no, there is no way it is getting from my hands onto my elbows. I am certain of that. <laughs> right? So this was the diagnostic maneuver. <laughs> right, so this guy uh, had a rash on his hands and his butt from a moisturizer that he was using. This person came in with a scalp dermatitis. I gave them uh, clobetazole foam. Their scalp dermatitis got worse and they came back with a rash on their hands. They were allergic to the propylene glycol in the clobetazole foam. Uh, this person, I believe, was allergic to her hairstyling product. So first, if you're anything, my, my practice about once a week, I see a medical person with a hand dermatitis, right? So what do you tell an OR nurse with horrible hand dermatitis with a positive patch reaction to rubber, right? Get a new job, sterile non-latex hypoallergenic gloves, um, good luck, right? You're, you're not going to find any. Um, sterile isoprene gloves, those still have accelerators. Sterile neoprene gloves, which is, of course, the answer. And get non-sterile, non-latex hypoallergenic gloves and autoclave them because there aren't any sterile, non-latex hypoallergenic gloves, right? Lots of things to tell her, but sterile neoprene gloves. Mainly what I want you to know, so are the names of gloves that you can tell your nurses, doctors, uh, EKG techs, everybody who works in healthcare, some accelerator-free gloves, right? So first, low allergenicity soap, tell them to carry it with them so that whenever they are in public, uh, they can use it to, to wash their hands. A low allergenicity moisturizer, and, and I, there's a list of them uh, in my notes. 
uh, desoxymedicine ointment, consider your hair products, but then gloves. You want to know index-free nitrile. You want to know micro-touch nitra-free. You want to know dermaprene ultra. Dermaprene ultra is your only sterile glove that does not have any rubber accelerators. And you want to know vinyl gloves. So vinyl gloves don't have any rubber accelerators in them, but you can't do anything wearing vinyl gloves. So they're, they're, kind of, they're useful if you're like, uh, examining and doing a full body check and need to look between somebody's butt cheeks and you know pull them apart. Yes, you put a pair of vinyl gloves on and do that, but you can't do surgery or a procedure wearing vinyl gloves, right? They just you don't get good tactile sensation. So then, so that's your your approach to, to hands. Widespread dermatitis again, a whole lecture in itself. Main culprits: clothing, hot tubs, soap, shampoo, moisturizer, and dietary nickel. Hot tubs are by far my favorite. Right, so they're, they're the easiest. Which fabric is most likely to cause allergic contact dermatitis? The one that we tell everybody to wear, right? Cotton. And so we'll, we'll talk for a second about what to do about this. And which can cause allergic contact dermatitis from clothing? Fragrance, formaldehyde, or textile dyes? So fragrance from your laundry uh, stuff, right? Formaldehyde, because cotton is treated with uh, formaldehyde-related chemicals before it gets sold and dies, obviously, because most clothing has died. So this guy was a high school principal. Uh, he would get this rash after school board meetings. It was from the dye in the suit that he would wear whenever he went to, to school board meetings. This guy was a college professor. It was from formaldehyde being released from his um, uh, corduroy sport coat, right? And this guy, it was from his uh, shirts that work provided that were a cotton sort of uh, uh, golf shirt. All right, this guy just kind of looked like a numular eczema and he also was allergic to formaldehyde in cotton clothing. So, so suspected uh, widespread allergic contact dermatitis. So textile dyes, if you're allergic to a dye, you tend to be allergic to one single dye. And what tends to happen is whenever you wear the particular piece of clothing that has that dye, you get a horrible rash and then you the rash goes away in a week or two and then you don't get it again until you wear that exact same piece of clothing. So it's usually acute and intermittent, all right? Textile resins is formaldehyde and it's in all of your cotton clothing. And so that one never goes away. It's just chronic because you're getting exposed a couple times a week and so it just never gets better. Um, have these people add a cup of non-fat powdered milk to their laundry. This was in Archives of Dermatology in 1974. Supposedly it binds the formaldehyde that's being released from the cotton, removes it. I've never been able to find any confirmation that it actually does that. However, I find that this definitely helps. Um, it may very well be placebo effect, right? Because patients love it. It might be your clothes. You need to add a cup of non-fat powdered milk. Non-fat powdered milk? Yes, non-fat powdered milk, one cup. Uh, you put it in with the, with the detergent, and I do think it helps. So then, from a hot tub, it's the shock treatment. All right, so don't even ask them, what do you use to treat your water with? They're going, oh, I've tried chlorine and bromine and copper and silver and this and that and the other. I guarantee they are using shock treatment. You have to use shock treatment. Shock treatment, what it does, when you're in the pool, when you're in the hot tub or a pool, right, the chlorine or bromine or whatever else kills germs and algae and everything else, but you're still uh, skin oils and skin cells and crud is accumulating, shock treatment gets rid of the crud. So if you're not putting shock treatment in, you are pretty much gonna have a hot tub that looks like a pond, right? You're not gonna be able to see the bottom of it. So everybody's using shock treatment. The shock treatments are all the same. They're all based on potassium peroxide monosulfate. 
This is the classic example of hot tub, where you get it on your inner arms, right? Because you're sitting and you're, you know, you're leaning back big time, just hanging out. The inside of your arms is getting it. And then the backs of your calves tend to get it as well. I think I have a picture of that. Yeah, the backs of your calves, that's from sitting on the side, you know, dangling your feet in. Now, when I originally became aware of this, I was like, oh, hot tubs, who has a hot tub? Right? Nobody has a hot tub. Because right, you think hot tub and you're like, bow, chicka, wow, wow. Chicka, chicka, wow, wow. Right? You will be shocked how many people have hot tubs once you start asking. All right? If they have a wide, somebody has a widespread dermatitis and owns a hot tub, it is pretty likely that the hot tub's the cause. This is really common. It's not in any textbooks, it's not in any, it's in one journal article that, that we did because a patient told me about this. They figured it out themselves. I'm allergic to my shock treatment, I don't get a rash after I put it in. I was, and initially I was like, look, sir, I'm a national expert and I have never heard of anybody being allergic to shock in their hot tub, so obviously you're not correct. Of course, he was correct, right? So occasionally being arrogant gets you in trouble. He was correct. Once he taught me that and I started looking for it, over the next two years I diagnosed 10 people. Right? It's like if I picked up 10 people in a year or so, it is common. And so just ask people, why is it? and I get an email about once every two weeks from somebody somewhere. Oh my God, you changed my life, I, you know, my hot tub, and, I, and everybody said I was crazy, and I had pseudomonas, and blah, blah, blah. It, this is common. So if somebody comes to the widespread rest, just ask, do you have a hot tub? If they say yes, Tell them to either stay out of their hot tub for six weeks or drain the hot tub, then refill it with water with no chemicals in it, and every time they would put shock in, they have to drain it and refill it again. That way there's no chemicals in it. Either one of those two things, they stay out of it for six weeks or they do that. If they get better, you've now proven that it is the shock treatment, okay? And so just, and it's an easy two-second question. Do you have a hot tub? All right, so then dietary nickel. Itchy, itchy elbows, right, Ex, uh, extensor surface of the elbows. Dietary nickel is about 100 times more common as a cause of this than is dermatitis or pediformis, all right? We see this, we're taught to think DH, dietary nickel much, 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 much more common, right? Can also give you this just itchy red bumps in general, right? So extensor elbows, extensor elbows and sole of her foot and her hand, right, extensor elbows. Right, if you see this, think dietary nickel. So dietary nickel, and again, if anybody emails me, I'll send you my low nickel diet. Um, oatmeal, legumes, so legumes are peas, uh, beans, and peanuts. So soybeans, green beans, kidney beans, baked beans, any kind of beans, right? Peanuts, um, peanut butter, dark chocolate um, are, are the big things. And then vitamin C with every meal, right? You wanna take that with every meal because it prevents the nickel from getting absorbed. And antabuse, antabuse is disulfiram. It actually chelates nickel and removes it from your body. I'll put somebody on this for two months to try and remove as much nickel as I can from their body. Obviously, they can't drink while they're on it because if they do, they will get deathly ill, all right? And then finally, this guy, a widespread dermatitis from his moisturizer. And then uh, I think I, I have sort of a list now of a bunch of moisturizers and steroids and that kind of stuff. Um, certainly it's not worth me going through that. Um, do I, am I over time, do I have any time left? Anybody? I have five minutes left? Perfect. So if you are patch testing, what do you do whenever you get a positive patch test result, okay? So, positive patch test result. You have to avoid information overload. 
Information overload is whenever you're, it's the way you're feeling right now, right? All this information, you're like, I can't remember any of this stuff. I just, I'm not gonna, I can't do any of this. I'm gonna go back to, I'm gonna go back to work and just give everybody I am catalog, right? <laughs> That's information overload, okay? Too much information so you retain and act on none. So you only tell them about the relevant allergens um, and you give them repeated exposure to the information. Use videos, all right? So, oh, where do I get these videos? Right, so first, why is it so important to determine relevance? Because if they have both relevant and irrelevant, so let's say it's somebody with um, a uh, rash on their hands and they're allergic to paraphenylenediamine, which is the active ingredient in hair dye, and they've never had their hair dyed once in their whole life. You do not need to tell, I don't even tell them that they're allergic to the paraphenylenediamine. Let's say they're allergic to paraphenylenediamine and formaldehyde, and I think that they're getting their rash from formaldehyde in hand soaps. I will not tell them about the paraphenylenediamine because there's very good research that each allergen you tell them about decreases the likelihood that they will remember any of the allergens by 50%. So if you tell them about, so the way you think about this, if you tell them about zero allergens, there's a 100% chance they'll remember that, right? If you tell them about one allergen, there's a 50% chance they'll remember it. You tell them about two, there's a 25% chance they'll remember it. You tell them about three, there's a 12% chance. So the more allergens you tell them about, the less likely they're gonna get better. All right, so telling them about the irrelevant ones makes it less likely to successfully avoid the relevant ones. And this is uh, the, the study that I'm talking about. So this is one year after testing, about 40% uh, of people remember what they're allergic to. Right? Now, there's a pretty good chance of it sticking. So if they're in this 40%, at five years, it only goes down to 30% or 25. At 10 years, it only goes down to 17. So it's pretty good if they get through the first year that they'll remember it after that. The, the, the more useful one, so right, if you give one positive patch test, 50% uh, chance roughly that you'll remember it. Two positive patch tests, 25% chance. Three positive patch tests, 14%. Greater than three, 9%. So you see where I get, it goes down by 50% every time. So the less you tell them about, the better. All right, verbal information is much better absorbed than written, so the worst thing you can do is give them a handout and not go over it with them. You have to go over the handout if you give it to them. If you're going to either talk to them or give them a handout, you need to talk to them. Best is to do both, okay? Explain what a positive test means, give them the information, um, what one or two names I should look for, don't give a list of names, and what products are likely to be sources. So again, if I've got a face dermatitis, um, or even better, let's say I've got a hand dermatitis, I, and they're allergic to fragrance, I will tell them, don't worry about your makeup, because if you are allergic to your makeup, your rash will be on your face, not your hands. So even though your makeup might have fragrance, it's not fragrance that you're having a problem with. Okay, so I, very commonsensical. Right, so then electronic media. Watching videos is more effective than face-to-face -face education. So there's been a good study. You take people with eczema, have the doc walk into the room, sit down, and talk to them for 10 minutes. Face-to-face, -face, here's what you've got, here's what you've got to do, you put your moisturizer on like this, you do that, you do that, you have any questions, we answer them. Okay, randomized controlled study. You either get that, the doctor face-to-face -face telling you something, or if you randomize to the other group, same doctor saying the exact same things, but instead of them in the room talking to you, you're watching them on a video. The people who watched the video statistically significantly did better than the people who had face-to-face -face interaction with the physician. All right, same doctor, same information. Videos are retained much better than face-to-face. -face. All right, so this, uh, 
website, www.mypatchlink.com. It's the people who make the true test and who make other the other allergens that are out there. Almost every allergen you'll ever have anybody allergic to is covered by a video on this website, okay? Uh, it's a really, really useful website. There also are handouts that you can print and give the patient. And then telling them what they can use is by far the best way to, to help them, much better than telling them what to avoid. So I will sometimes not even tell, like with my older patients, who I know are not gonna, you know, be looking at ingredient lists, I won't even tell them what they're allergic to. I will just say, you know what, you're allergic to an ingredient that's in a lot of shampoos and moisturizers. Don't use any shampoo except for this one. Don't use any moisturizer except for this one. That is really effective at helping them avoid the allergen. Okay, it's much simpler. Now, for, for you know, well-educated people or, or people who have good eyesight and can look at the ingredient list, absolutely, you can tell them, here's what you're allergic to, look at ingredient lists. But for your less sophisticated patients, just tell them what to use. Don't tell them what to avoid. Tell them what to use and to avoid everything else. And so CAMP is the, is the database from the Eric Contact Derm Society. Um, any dermatologist can join this. It costs, I think, 300 bucks a year. Here's what, the, here's what it looks like. And, and the basic idea here, whatever they're allergic to, you just go down here and check the box, okay, of, oh, they're allergic to fragrance, right? Um, it then populates this, you hit generate product list once you've clicked on what they're allergic to. It then, you can then pick what products you want, so moisturizer, shampoo, conditioner, soap, uh, wipes, uh, anything you can think of, they, they have uh, the, those products in there. And then you hit print, and it generates a list, good lord, right? And the list tells them Number one, about allergic contact dermatitis, right? Tells them what they're allergic to, so what you clicked on. Uh, and it gives them these codes so that six months from now, a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, they can get online and get an updated list. They're not gonna call, they shouldn't need to call your office and say, hey, I lost my list, or can I get a new list, or whatever. It's free, they can get on and get a new list. Right, so um, you can write their name, you can tell them about that so that they get the, the uh, updated list. Using the list, right, so it tells them the this is a list of products that are safe. They have to get the exact product listed. Products that are the same brand and have a similar name are probably not safe. Uh, and even if they, when they buy something on the list, they should still look at the ingredients to make sure that the company hasn't changed the product. Right, and then this is what the list looks like. So conditioner, California Baby, DHS, Pantene, VMV Hyperallergenics, gives you the brands and then the specific products that are safe. And this is now, there are about a couple thousand products that are in there now. And you can email the list to them if you want, um, and it sends them an email from a non-respondable email address, so you're not, gonna, you're not gonna get emails from your crazy patients if you do this. And I think that is about it. Oh, the other thing, there's a list of, of handouts. Um, click narratives list on the side, which is right there and then it gives you a, a list of allergens. You click on those, it gives you a handout that you can print and give to the patient. And that's it. Are we doing questions or am I done? Yeah, yes. 
what has been your there we go. What has been your experience using Atropro gel or spray in your pruritus? You know what? I have not. I don't have a. So whenever Atropro and um, Orstat came out, I was very excited about it because they're very very cool products. Um, most of my patients have already tried it by the time they get to me. So if it worked, they never show up to see me. So I, I haven't used a whole lot of it. So I can't, my experience is it never ever works, but that's because if it worked, they did you, you have a skewed sample. <laughs> yes, a very skewed sample. So I, I, they're really cool products, but I don't know, I do not know okay. if they work or not. All right, thanks. How are you getting desoxymethasone covered? Because I'm having a hard time when I want someone to be on that because of an allergy-related dermatitis. You know, so, with Medicare and everything else, and Medicaid, I'm not being able to get it covered. The biggest problem with desoxymethasone had been that um, the cream, the low-potency cream and the low-potency ointment were brand name. Now everything desoxymethasone is generic. So most insurances sort of are not sophisticated enough to say this is a fairly expensive generic. If I can't, if their insurance won't cover it as a generic, I can't get them on it. So that's, if I can't do that, my next, the next least allergenic product available um, is uh, probably hydrocortisone butyrate ointment. So there, the nice thing about desoxymethasone ointment, there's no, there's no allergens in the vehicle and nobody is allergic to the steroid molecule itself. Um, hydrocortisone butyrate, no allergens in the ointment vehicle. Few people will be allergic to the active steroid itself, but in general, it's pretty good. So that's if I can't get them on desoxymethasone, that's my second choice. Okay, thank you. How do you make the diagnosis of a um, rash from dietary nickel? Do you use a, a do a biopsy and so it, it is a um, if somebody has itchy bumps on their extensor elbows, that's my presumptive diagnosis. I will then do a patch test to make sure they're nickel allergic. That, but I st at that point, I still haven't made the diagnosis. You only make the diagnosis after you put them on a low nickel diet and they get better. And once they get better on a low nickel diet, I will then tell them, okay, for a, for a week, I want you to eat all the high nickel stuff you can. Let's see if you break back out. And if you do, then we've proven it's nickel and you gotta follow this diet for the rest of your life. So before I put somebody on a stay away from oatmeal and dark chocolate and peanut butter and peanuts and beans and peas and chickpeas and all that stuff for the rest of your life. I went pretty good, like, you got better on the diet, you got worse when we, put you, when we had you eat a lot of nickel, um, and then you got better again when we put you on the diet again. So that's, it's, it is a sort of a three-step, um, itchy bumps on the elbows, then a patch test, then the diet. If they're allergic to nickel um, contact-wise, do you tell them to go on a low nickel diet also? So, so like if they're getting earlobes in here, and the, so no. Only if they're getting a widespread, um, and, and if you biopsy it, uh, I know from my pathologist what they will say is, um, the description will be uh, superficial and mid-dermal perivascular infiltrates, primarily lymphocytes with a few eosinophils with minimal spongiosis, suspect internal antigens such as drug. Um, that's the path I get back is sort of a, quote, drug reaction whenever I biopsy it. So the path is not helpful at all. Um, 
the, and so it's much, it's just a, you, you, you see the itchy bumps on the elbows, oh, maybe this is nickel, let's patch test you, oh, you're allergic to nickel, and about half of people who are allergic to nickel give no history of reactions to nickel. So earlobes, jewelry, all that stuff, uh, never had it. And so it's, and that's probably because to get a reaction, your sweat has to leach the nickel out of the stuff. And if you don't have the right chemistry on your skin surface, you'll never leach it, never get a rash. So if they, if they say, no, I've never had a problem with metal stuff, that doesn't dissuade me at all. I still patch test them. Yes? I'm going to tell my age here, but 36 years ago, lanceno was pure lanolin. Is it still? It is still pure lanolin. And so the reason why I'm okay telling people to use lanceno, when you look at lanolin, right, so lanolin is um, sheep sebum. So if you think about a sheep that's covered in wool, right, as far as you can very much think of it as that's like a person who's never washed their hair, right? So greasy, stringy hair. And lanolin is the grease that, that gets removed from the wool. So it's basically hair grease from sheep, okay? It's extremely allergenic at that point. It then gets processed and purified and processed and purified and processed and purified. Even people who are allergic to lanolin, I've never had anybody allergic to lanolin because it's so purified and processed. That's what I wanted to know. I have a patient who's allergic to the lanolin and she's allergic to everything userin makes. Yeah, the, if, if you try the lanolin with her, initially just have her do twice a day uh, a little spot test for about a week to make sure she doesn't react to it. Thank you. Yes. So if I am highly suspicious, um, I will do, so everybody gets eight weeks first. So they get, a, they get an eight-week test. If I'm highly suspicious, I will do the diet and put them on antabuse, which is the disulfiram. Disulfiram, the big things, they can't consume any alcohol at all. They can't use mouthwash. They can't any alcohol at all. They get very sick. You have to check LFTs at baseline and at one month. Um, but you do those two things, and it's a very safe drug. They will, if you put them on the antabuse, they will often get worse for the first week or two as it starts to draw nickel out of their tissues and into their blood. Um, but if I do the diet and antabuse for eight weeks and they don't get better, I have ruled out nickel uh, as far as I'm concerned as a possibility. If I do just the diet, and they don't get better, then I'm still, well, probably not nickel, but maybe they didn't follow the diet very well, right? But if I do the antabuse, that works really well. If it's, so if it's nickel, the antabuse will work. So, but eight weeks is how long I try the diet for. Yes? If I do topical capsaicin for stuff on the skin. So I use, I actually use a lot of topical capsaicin for um, uh, natalgia parasthetica, you know, itchy spots on their back, brachioradioporitis, uh, pregonodularis. When I'm using it for the skin, uh, I always have them mix it one part capsaicin with three parts moisturizer. Um, and so I, I haven't done that for the lips, but it'd be a very reasonable thing to do. All right, thanks guys.